Welcome to the 75th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg in California, and our co-host Vicki Nichols-Goldstein is still holed up in Roatan, Honduras. And enjoying every day. Hello, everyone. So, not surprisingly, this week we're honored to be speaking with Francis Lean Boo, the executive director of the Roatan Marine Park, a grassroots community-based nonprofit on the island. Francis is an environmental science professional and certified dive master who studied in the Netherlands and has worked throughout Africa and Latin America before taking on leadership of the Roatan Marine Park Group. So, Francis, normally we start out asking about people's first connection to the sea, but I'm kind of interested in uh, your latest. Since Vicky's been raving about the marine wildlife there, when was your last dive? What were you looking for and what did you find? Hello. Hi, everyone. <laughs> During my last dive, I think it was in September, we were doing, we were doing monitoring on a spawning of corals here in Rotterdam, And it was very interesting because we had many organizations, authorities that were here to learn a little bit about how the spawning of corals, the coral spawning and how assisted reproduction uh, process happens and learn more about corals in the double coral restoration. And I understand when corals spawn, everybody in the water column kind of gets turned on and starts spawning as well, if not eating their spawn. Yes, all the fish are going all around trying to eat, competing, and trying to eat all the spawn. But it was, it was, it's really amazing to see all the species there going crazy. It's like a frenzy. And it looks really nice. It looks like it's snowing, and it's amazing. It does feel like you are in a snow globe when you are near a coral spawn. It's just little uh, balls of white and really light pink. It's, it's beautiful. And then all the animals come in to eat the eggs. And yeah, as you said, it is, it's just a frenzy, but it's so cool to see life evolving. So Francis, let me get back to what's usually our first question, which is what was your first connection with the sea? What's, what's your background and how'd you hook up with the greater well, part of our planet? <laughs> My father is a fisherman. So he's always taken us to the ocean since we were kids. So I've always fallen in love with the ocean. I always like going there, going to the beach, getting in the water. I always felt that connection uh, with the ocean. And then years later, I decided to study um, environmental sciences, but my focus was always uh, wanted to be in the ocean, wanted to do conservation, and always like uh, diving. I always wanted to dive. Unfortunately, in my country, it's not that easy to do it if you live in the mainland. I'm from the mainland, so it's not that easy to do it. But when I was 23, I started diving and I fallen in love even more with the ocean. And I've been able to to did, uh, to do my um, dive master. I did it in 20, 2013, 2014. And it was amazing. I mean, it always surprises you. It's just a time when you get like go in the water and I don't even have to see like big species or anything special, just being there is really amazing. Just makes you feel, I don't know, like you're in outer space or something. So Francis, you said the mainland, so you're from Honduras. Yes, I'm from Honduras, from the mainland. Okay, okay. let's make sure our listeners knew what mainland we were talking about. And, and <laughs> you grew up in Tegucigalpa or what part? Yes, I grew up in Tegucigalpa. My father was from Tela, which is in, right now another marine protected area. And I used to go on vacations there. And uh, yes, I'm from Tegus. <laughs> I spent many months from there, and it's a very inland city. But your father took you fishing on the coast, and eventually you found yourself onto the islands. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, he used to take me to the oh, both coasts and the south coast and the north coast. And uh, we used to go fishing all the time there. And we still also go fishing in a lake. We have a very beautiful lake in Honduras. So we used to go there all the time fishing. So he's always been a fisherman. Mm-hmm. And as I tell everyone here on the island doing my work, a fisherman will always be a fisherman. No matter how much sometimes we went for conservation, people want to stop them or they think they're not good for the reef uh, or for the species or for conservation. However, they're very important. And I feel very, like, I also feel a connection with them because I also like fishing. That's something a connection to my father that I will always, uh, that I'll always have. So, and I understand them when they, their need to fish there. It's, it's in their culture. Yes. My grandfather was a fisherman and I too grew up fishing with him and taking from the sea, but yet at a certain point, and as fishermen are learning, you know, we work to protect it together with a fisherman and we work to, we have the same vision. We all want a healthy environment with lots of animals. So it it can be a very team approach. They have a lot of information because they tell you, you know, we used to have this many, many years ago. I used to catch, I used to go just one hour and we'll catch 10 fish. Now have to spend there the whole day to actually do this. So they have a lot of information. So I would like to have you tell us a little bit more about the organization that you are now running. Yeah, well, the Rotten Marine Park is a nonprofit organization that started with the diving community in 2005. Since the 90s, the local community have been working on getting Roatan or West End and West Bay to be a protected area. So by 2005, the area was declared legally a protected area. However, Honduras, our enforcement abilities, our country's enforcement abilities are not the best ones. So in 2005, these divers and this community got together because they saw, they saw that some of the species were, we didn't, didn't see them, but they're often, and you know that the divers, they know that, you know, they go there and their sightings is very special for them. So they saw it was, everything was declining. So this says, okay, the laws are there. Let's start an enforcement program. So we started doing patrols here at the Rotem Marine Park here in the, in the west uh, side of the, over the island where we had more tourism. So uh, with that patrol, we started with one boat. Right now we have five boats. And once we, we started like getting all the support and getting more boats, and we started looking at, oh, we need to do some more. We need to do education because it's not only enforcement what we need. We also need to educate. And we also need to do more conservation program. So we started to do another programs. One of them is the marine infrastructure. And because we were still working with the dive, dive shop communities, it was a great idea because people, because it's forbidden to anchor on the reef or anchor on the seagrass. So we decided to set up the marine infrastructure with the mooring lines, the dive sites, the dive moorings that we have here on the island. 90% of them are set are set up by the Rota Marine Park. And that would avoid, for us as a conservation organization, will stop all the damage caused by anchoring. And also for the dive shop, it was um, a win-win situation because they will actually be able to tie to a buoy instead of using fuel to be to run and that will also, uh, and that will also run their, their gas bill. And so it was a very, it was, it's a, it's a very good program that currently it's working. We also did some, doing some uh, community outreach. We have a group that they produce honey with, from the bees. They do harvest all the honey from the bees. And we supported this program because it was a, it's, it was in a fishing community that according to the laws, they were not able to fish. 
because they were in a no-take zone. So we decided to support this fishing community so they can uh, live out of another activity. So right now, these people are doing, they have lotions, um, they have soaps, shampoos, and all the products that we sell in our shop and that you can see them all over the island in different businesses. You know, that's so interesting because I've seen that, but I didn't know the relationship. So that's that's fascinating. You've installed the dive buoys. You've got economic programs so that people who can't fish in certain areas can develop alternative sustainable industries like beekeeping. And you're doing patrols. Uh, yeah. When you do find poachers or rules being broken, do you call in the Honduran Navy or who does the actual enforcement? We actually work together with the Honduran Navy. So each of our boats has two members of the Navy, has two soldiers who are the ones who actually do all the uh, CC and then confiscate. Uh, so we have a very good relationship with them. And uh, whenever, yeah, there's some coaching or any illegal activity like mangrove cutting or seagrass uh, removal, we actually go and uh, send a report immediately to the authorities, which is a municipality, but the Navy helps us out to do all the, whatever is required. And what about the larger question of tourist development? A lot of loss of mangroves I've seen in the Florida Keys was a result of overbuilding. Obviously, there's this balance between the desire for economic development and not taking down the resources that attract people to your location in the first place. I think as, as everything else, right, like getting to that balance is the hard part, you know, like to be able to balance the economic development and uh, and make it in a way sustainable, right? Fortunately, in Rotan, there's many people very conscious about the importance of seagrass and um, and mangroves. So we always get reports about it when those things happen, how they happen, definitely. And it's a damage that sometimes is ir irreparable. But I think here we have, we still have some conscious about it, how important it is. We have a lot of people who really want to protect it. But it did happen. There are some other, there are some places that People just cut the mangroves because they want to have white sandy beach and nobody was able to detect it before they, they did it. They just did it. And then, so it's, uh, we're trying to actually do some, um, awareness, create awareness because sometimes white sandy beach means they cut the mangrove, they refilled it. And then you have a nice white sandy beach. Same with the seagrass. We have issues with the seagrass here that people want the tourists to have like pool, like sea and they remove the seagrass uh, without understanding that that is a very important ecosystem for us. Honduras recently experienced a coup and more turmoil, but you now have a new president, Castro, and she seems to be doing a lot to restore democracy, to help the economy and the environment. Is, is she somebody that you might engage with in terms of expanded protections for the islands, for the Bay Islands? And is, is this a conversation that started yet? Well. We haven't started that kind of conversation. We try to make, to have a very good relationship with uh, all the governments that come because we know it's, um, it could change any time. <laughs> with the coup, we found out that, that anyone could be, I mean, could be taken away from us. But I think uh, we're trying, we have good relationship with the current, with the current government and we're hoping for their support if we need to do that, if we need to expand it into tank zones or for a core restoration program. Uh, for other permits or things that we need to do to be able to do our job. Maybe you could tell our audience a little more about the Bay Islands and Roatan and what's special about them. Well, uh, Roatan, as you mentioned, is one of, uh, it's part of the Mesoamerican Reef, which is a 
second largest barrier reef in the world. And it covers Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, and Honduras. So we are, this is the only, I think, barrier reef that is covered by four countries. So it's really amazing. We have different kind of um, different species. Uh, according to what I've been told, is one of the youngest reef and species that we have here. So it's not like in um, in Australia. So this is right now here, the balance is an area where uh, we have a lot of inter connections with the other areas in the Mesoamerican Reef. So it's really, really amazing what we have. And tell yeah. us a little more about that. What one sees when one gets uh, off the island and into the water. Oh, wow. You can see, uh, which I love, you can see eels, warrant eels. You can see turtles. Sea turtles is really amazing. Eagle rays, shark, whale sharks, dolphins, pilot whales, sperm whales. Fish galore. Lots of colors. A lot of colors for fish. And corals. And then actually, I think in 2009, according to the Health Service Initiative, their evaluation, they have a report card. The Rotan had actually one of the best reefs on the Mesoamerican Reef. However, right now with the disease that we have coming from Florida, it has actually caused a lot of damage to our coral coverage here in, in Rotan and I guess in most of the Caribbean countries. Tell us more about that disease. The uh, stony coral. You can describe it better than I can. I always get a little tangled up with it. Yeah, and the stony coral tissue loss disease is a disease that uh, was reported first in Florida in the in the Florida track in 2014. And um, at the beginning, the scientists didn't know what it was. Still, we still don't know what kind of this hasn't. The scientists have hasn't discovered what kind of disease it is. Is it viral, bacterial? So they're still working on it since 2014. So we knew it was coming, it started coming down uh, with the currents. So uh, it arrived in Mexico and arrived in Belize. And then it came to Honduras in 2020 when we were in the pandemic. So this disease, what it does, uh, attacks over 25 species of hard corals. And what it does, it kills the whole tissue. So it's like, for example, we compare it during the COVID, we compare like a kind of a, a COVID pandemic comparison because it kills 98% of the, of the colony, of all the colonies. So it was very devastating for, for us. And it's like, normally when you, normally people said it's like uh, bleaching, but it's not bleaching. For bleaching, uh, what happens is the um, symbiotic algae that lives in the coral just leaves the coral so it loses the its color, right? But, but in that case, it can come back if the conditions are correct. It can come back and can live. However, in stony coral tissue loss, it, it, kills com it kills completely the whole tissue of the coral. So it's like if you were left on your bare bones, if they scratch you completely and you just leave your bones. So it's really, it's really kills everything. And you can really see it with the pillar corals here where you just have complete loss and you just have the shapes, but you don't have any of the living tissue or the organism. But you've been, you've been doing some work with the community in educating them about the loss. And tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so in 2020, in here in Honduras, it's very difficult actually to get permits and immediate permits are really hard to, to obtain. So we got together with all the organizations and we got the permits and actually at a record time in a month, we were able to treat corals. And what we 
did is uh, with the course that we we received, with the training that we received from people from Mexico and the U.S., they taught us how to treat the coral with antibiotics, with amoxicillin. So what we did is you put in a syringe, in a big syringe, you put um, amoxicillin and a base to be, it's like an ointment. So you mix it all together, put it in a in a in a big syringe, and then you press it, and then you get like a small line, and you put it on the on every lesion that the coral has, and it stops the uh, the disease to keep moving. And this disease is like if the coral has it has the disease, some corals you can see the effect of this disease in less than twenty four hours. I mean, it kills the corals. You can see from one day to another. If you go one day and see it has a disease, and then you take another picture the next day, twenty four hours later you can actually see the difference on that's how fast it kills the coral. So we had to, each and every one of those lesions, which actually put the, put this uh, ointment with amoxicillin. However, the disease is in the water, it's in the water column. So it actually kills. So actually, if you treat one in, in a colony, if you, treat, if you treat one lesion, then the other lesion can, uh, then another lesion can come up again. So it's very labor intensive. We had to prioritize like for the big corals, the big corals to, to treat because we were in the water and it was really devastating to see all the dead corals and try to decide which one are we treating and which one are we not. And you see some beautiful corals with a disease that no, it's not worth treating because it doesn't have enough uh, live tissue. So it was a very rough time for us and the corals. Unfortunately, this is what I've been talking about. We've moved to a state of triage where we have to save what we can while we can. But having volunteers like that, getting in the water, doing direct, I mean, anybody who questions whether corals are living creatures, the fact that you can use antibiotics to help cure them from disease. How many people did you have out there? And, and is it an ongoing volunteer program that puts enough bodies in the water? Yeah, at that time, because it was like in during COVID time, it was very difficult because everyone left the islands. Most of the divers left the island. But we had some dive shops that actually volunteered their time for boats and their divers that they had. And they started, we just gave them the amoxicillin. We just trained them, given all the base to be of what they needed. And we actually had over 50 divers supporting our cost during that time. It was a full year. And... Currently, there's a couple of dive shops who are still doing it. They just ask us to get the amoxicillin because it's not that easy to get and it needs to be done through us. So that way we know that the persons who are actually doing the treatments are people who are actually trained to do it. But right now we're moving towards more restoration activities, towards more active restoration. That's why we, as I mentioned before, we're doing assisted reproduction, coral reproduction. And we're also doing a coral restoration program, which is um, asexual kind of reproduction, the microfragmentation and the fragmentations of different, uh, of the, of the acroporus, which will help us build the structure of the reef. So, because what we wanted at that time is to gain some time to be able to have this restoration efforts to uh, to be revamped or upscale. And there are some reefs that, some corals actually, some colonies that are actually resilient and are still there. And there's some people who are still, who they have their pillar corals were there and they treat it and they actually spawn one time. So it's really, really, they even named it. So it's really interesting. What's its name? I think one is Pedro Veto, and I can't remember the other one, but they have weirdness. But the thing is that they changed their names because pillar corals, they change their sex depending on 
what's needed. I mean, one day, one season, they are they they release sperm, and the other one they release uh, different. I mean, there's sometimes they're males, sometimes they're females. So it's really. And I didn't know it was that way until they told me. It's like, oh no, we have found one time. I said because I'm not a biologist, but I have the biologist. I'm no, no. I was very happy that they found one that was male and another one female, so we can put them all together. It's like Francis, they can change the next year, and I'm like, what? <laughs> the ocean's very uh, creative in its uh, reproductive <laughs> strategies, and a transgender fish and a coral that change gender is needed. It's it's an amazing place. So, how about education off island in terms of raising awareness on the mainland in Honduras? Internationally, people know who we are. People know about the marine park, but we need to have our own people learn about it. So, 2020. We started working on that campaign at the end on trying to teach people that Roatan is not just party place or a vacation place. It is a marine protected area because that's one thing that many people do not know. So we started focusing our trainings or our educational talks on starting by saying, welcome to the Bay Islands National Marine Park. And the people didn't know what it was the the Bay Islands National Marine Park. So we started telling them about it, about all the ecosystems that we have why is it important, how is it part of the Mesoamerican region. And now I think we have in the mainland lately, the last two years, like they're increasing interest in people that study biology. They said, oh, we want to do an internship on the, with the Rotem Marine Park. How can we help? We want to volunteer. So we've seen, and I know right now, social media is very important for marketing. And so we have everything on our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the media, all the ways, social media that we could use to be able to communicate all this information to our Hondurans. And that was like our main target group. And so that was for us very, one of the very important successes that we had last year to be able to have people want to come here, knowing more about the importance of the reef. Francis, you also have a challenge with the large cruise ships coming in. And uh, a year ago, we had a conversation about some of your interest in putting educational materials on the cruise ships or providing cruise ships with videos so tourists would know how to add what products to use and not use. Can you tell us a little bit more about that idea and program that you're moving towards? Yes. We have been posting uh, how to be a responsible visitor. So we have a post about that so we can put it on the cruise ships. We can put it in any entrance, tourist entrance, like on the airport as well. We used to have one on the airport. I think it's there. It's kind of old, but we'll still have the, the basic things about not littering, about not do not touch the reef, do not buy souvenirs that are brought, made of conks or any species that come from the ocean or any other place. Let the people just uh, enjoy watching them and taking pictures of them, and that's it telling them not to do fishing, uh, overfishing, you know, the species like, for example, lobster and conch, like this is forbidden to actually hunt for for conch and lobster here on the island. So tell people to select, to be selective of what you want to eat. We also have a responsible seafood guide, which teaches the local people what kind of, what kind of fish, if you're going to order fish and a seafood, uh, this is the best one you should order, and this one is the one that you shouldn't order. Like, for example, if you, somebody offers you a turtle or shark or parrotfish, do not eat it. If you get offered um, lionfish, please go ahead and eat it as much as you can. And so that that's, that's the invasive one, the lionfish. 
organization is the one who uh, can issue license to local divers or snorkelers to hunt for lionfish because here on the island on the very protected area it's illegal to actually spearfish and that's the way to catch the lionfish uh, so what we did is we have we have a license so if you want to be a lionfish hunter you come to the marine park you do a test you have to receive a small course you get in the water and you have to shoot coconuts with your uh, hawaiian sling which is really so fun <laughs> <laughs> and then you can go ahead and hunt you get a license and you can go ahead and hunt for lionfish so it's something really fun you know i i like the course it's really it's, it's really cool to shoot coconuts Yes, I I graduated from the course and I had a great time. And when I go diving, most divers will have a, a spear. So I think they are your effort has really helped to reduce the lionfish, at least in these populated areas. So Vicky, how many coconuts have you killed? <laughs> oh, I think in order to pass the test I had to I had to nail seven of them. Is that right, Francis? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we think you are doing a fantastic job. And I just want to thank you so much for your dedication and for being the director of the Roatan Marine Parks and for joining us on the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. Thank you so much. And the ocean thanks you too. Thank you. And thank you all for everything you do. I think this ocean podcast is very important for everyone to, not, to understand all the importance of uh, the reef and everything that we all do. I mean, it's amazing. All the organizations, not only the Roatan Marine Park, other organizations around the world, how all the work they do. And sometimes it's very frustrating, uh, but we still have people that go there and still fight and they never give up. I mean, it's really amazing. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.